Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, we had a tremendous conference, and again, I just want to thank all of you for your participation. Uh, somebody said we had at least half the uh, members or attenders of the church participate in supporting things, and and you all just did a, a fabulous job. And as I look around, I'm impressed because I know that most of the ones who did a lot of the work are here, and I know you're uh, probably more tired than I am, so that's a great testimony to your your stamina and your endurance. But there were more comments from people about how generous and gracious and kind everybody here was. And it just, you know, makes my heart swell with pride to hear comments like that and to hear stories. I, you know, uh, Pat Kate just couldn't get over it. Here's a guy who speaks at lots of places, lots of churches, and was just overwhelmed uh, with the generosity. He went back to the book table to get Waleed's book, and some lady was standing there next to him and just said, you're not going to buy this, and paid for it for him. And and uh, there were, you know, some of the other speakers were were equally taken care of in different ways, and it's just a tremendous testimony to our grace orientation, generosity. It's more than Southern hospitality. It's what's been produced as a result of spiritual growth in the congregation, and so it's just just tremendous. And, and so many people made comments on how how well organized it was. And we couldn't do this without the work of people like Bruce and Eddie and, and Jack and Laura back in the back. And what Bruce does, listen, everybody, I'm going to embarrass him tonight. Last, let me tell you the value of what, what this video is doing and what Bruce is doing. Because last year at pre-trib, Bruce and Laura and Jack packed up all the video equipment, all the sound stuff in the back of uh, his truck and just hauled everything up to Dallas for the pre-trip conference, set it all up, and we this year we were able to video the whole pre-trip conference rather than just, um, just put it on MP3 or just make cassettes. And that's, you know, because, you know, we take our projectors up there. I mean, West Houston Bible Church is the logistics for all the electronics now for, for pre-trib. And Tommy came in, and Tommy's going to talk in just a minute. Tommy came in and to this conference this week, and there were per- person after person after person came up to him and said that they were able to get the DVDs from the conference and that we, they've been showing them at their church, at their Sunday school classes, and these kinds of things, and how it is providing uh, data information to protect them from a lot of the false teaching that's going on. Several of these people never heard of the emergent church before. There was a lady who was here this week who had been to pre-trib once before, and she was back this year, and she came back, and she goes to a big Baptist church somewhere just south of here in um, kind of sugar something over there, and uh, <clears throat> without mentioning any names, and uh, she said that that when she got back, she realized that their church, their pastor was taking them full speed into the emergent church movement. Now, some of you don't even know what the emergent church movement. You need to get those those videos, the emergent church movement, and all this other stuff, and how many people were going in and talking to their pastor, armed with the facts and the data that came out of those messages that we had on post uh, postmodernism and emergent church and things like that at pre-trib. So it's that's all the kinds of things that are being enabled by the service and the ministry coming out of this congregation, and it's just we just have no idea that the impact of that. Some guy came up to Tommy and said, "You know, I've been showing those DVDs on the emerging church at our church, and we're protected now. We're not. That shows its head around our church. We're not going to go for it." <laughs> you could tell he was from East Texas. I can I can do that accent real well. I did my student teaching in Garrison, Texas. And I learned how to do East Texas real well. One day I caught myself telling that class that y'all best shut up. And I heard that come out of my mouth. And I was just appalled and embarrassed that I said anything like that. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> start a, we'll, we'll record that for. Do we have that sound? <laughs> do we have that thing that, that Pat Kate did? <laughs> Those guys are crazy back there. We're going to be here at Akbarov. I don't know how. All right, let's have a word of prayer, and then afterwards, I'm going to have Tommy come up for just a minute. Um, as we did last year, I like to have some of the men who are still around after the conference to just talk a little bit about what's going on in their ministry and what they're doing, and just so we become a little more informed in that and what to pray for. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Lord, we're indeed grateful that we've had this tremendous week of opportunity just to to serve so many in the body of Christ by hosting the conference and by uh, enabling so many to come here. Father, we thank you for each of the speakers, for what we've learned, for the things that have widened our horizon of understanding of your word. And we pray that it will, that your word will not go forth void as you have promised, but that it will produce that which is intended, which is ultimately that it will uh, enable us to understand more fully our salvation, your character, and that we might advance in our spiritual growth. Now, Father, as we study tonight, we pray that you would help us to uh, understand what your word teaches and be challenged by these doctrines. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tommy, come on up. and we got a live, live handheld here. I went into the pit, but I came out. It is alive. Here, watch it. Okay. You're going to get wired. Okay. There. <coughs> Thank you, Dr. Dean. But it, I also want to compliment, <clears throat> you know, the congregation on on uh, putting on a help put on a good conference and all that kind of stuff. It had a real impact, I'm sure, in many people's lives because. We live in a very dangerous day spiritually, you know, where there's a spiritual decline and, as the British say, downgrade. Um, I think the Bible calls it apostasy. Uh, and it's, it's good to have some um, clear voices that uh, encourage people who want to uh, follow the Lord, learn His Word, and live for Him instead of just going off in trends. And uh, the Pre-Trib Research Center that I've been involved with now for almost 15 years was started by Tim LaHaye. It was his idea. And uh, Tim LaHaye uh, has had some pretty good ideas over the years. Uh, it was his idea to start the Institute for Creation Research Science and hired a guy named Henry Morris many years ago. Um, he started the um, first Christian high school system in, in America, Christian school system. Um, and a number, a lot of organizations over the years. And he sensed that the, the doctrine of the preacher of rapture and dispensationalism and things were in decline. And he was right. And so um, he thought we should get together and have an annual meeting where we brought together a lot of the old guard like Dr. Walford and Ryrie and Pentecost. And uh, we decided to have the annual meeting in Dallas for a number of reasons because there was a lot of those guys there. And secondly, you know, it's in the middle of the United States pretty much. And uh, so that's we, we just had our 15th annual pre-trip study group where we get together for two and a half days and present pretty much academic-type papers, you know, in this area. And uh, next year will be our 16th one, and uh, we're going to do something different and have a debate with Hank Hennegraff, who is a preterist who believes the book of Revelation was fulfilled uh, in the first century, in the past, and a lot of that depends on whether the book of Revelation was written under the reign of Nero around 66 or 67 A.D., A.D. 66, 67, or whether it was written like uh, we believe it was uh, under the reign of Domitian in A.D. 95. And if 
uh, it was written under Domitian, then that means that uh, preterism cannot be true because Revelation is a prophecy of the future, and so it has to have been written uh, telling you about the future. And so Mark Hitchcock, who's a member of our preacher study group, finished his doctorate last year. He's a pastor in Edmond, Oklahoma, an excellent Bible teacher. And he's going to debate him because he finished his, just did his doctoral dissertation on that subject. Plus, Mark used to be a lawyer for four or five years, so uh, he's, a, he's a good Bible teacher. And, uh, you know, I don't know if he's going to pull out any of that slick lawyering stuff or not. But nevertheless, we're looking forward to that. And one of the things that the Preacher Research Center has done, basically, is we try to bring, identify and bring to, together people who are uh, advocates of our view and to uh, research, teach, uh, proclaim, and defend our views. And I estimate that at least 100 books you know, have been written since... Uh, inspired by people either meeting at the Preacher of Research Center or inspired by uh, the Preacher of Research Center since it was founded, you know, in the area of Bible prophecy. And as the seminaries have, that I always like to say the formerly dispensational seminaries who never defended anymore have, have pretty much gone by the wayside in, in the last 25 years, uh, the Preacher of Research Center is helping to take up the slack to uh, defend a lot of these views, um, both at the academic level and uh, provide material and things for pastors as well as interested laymen. And so that's kind of, that's pretty much the goal uh, of our organization. And uh, it's good to see that, uh, you know, there's, there has been some impact. And I was working for LaHaye for a full year before uh, he started writing the novels, the Left Behind novels, which have had a big impact. Now, I'm not a big novel fan, but nevertheless, I ha you know, I have to reluctantly admit, I think the Lord's used those things. There have been tens of thousands of people come to faith in Christ by reading uh, these novels, and I remember that LaHaye and I were at a conference in Springfield, Missouri, uh, I guess this would be about 95, January 95, and we'd gotten snowed in, and we had to stay over an extra day, and so he was calling on the phone to Jerry Jenkins when they were writing the first novel, and I remember he came away from talking on the phone, and so excited, he told me, he says, I think these novels, this novel, because there was only going to be one at that time, <laughs> then there was three, and there was going to be six, and now 12, you know, now they got 15, you know, I mean, you know. Uh, you know, when you start making money, the publisher doesn't want to quit. But nevertheless, he told me he th he thought this novel might be so successful it would sell 250,000 copies. <laughs> and now I think it's over 70 million. And uh, so one thing you can be praying about is he's trying, he's having a hard time getting the movie thing going, you know what I mean? He's supposed to be making a movie, uh, wants to make a movie about the resurrection that picks up where the, what was that movie? Passion of the Christ. Passion of the Christ leaves off. In other words, the movie would open up with a dramatic presentation of the resurrection, and then it would have flashbacks to the life of Christ uh, throughout the rest of the movie, and then it would end with his ascension in heaven, into heaven, very dramatically which would set up the stage then for future movies about Bible prophecy. And uh, he, he's having a hard time, uh, you know, getting those, even though he has a contract with Sony, the largest movie distributors, you know, in America. So you might want to pray that he can get that out, because if, if he wants control of these movies so that they'll have the gospel in it, you see, uh, not this little cheap thing that they did you know, that he did not approve of called about the Left Behind movie that didn't even have the gospel in it and stuff. And he believes, especially in, in third world countries, for example, India. India has the uh, largest per capita movie watchers in the world. They go to movies over there all the time. 
and anything coming out of America, you know, they simply dub in the language change. And if it's a Hollywood movie, they'll automatically show it throughout India, you see. And that, that's why he wants to do that. He thinks that it's very, it's very possible you could have a, a million people just in India come to faith in Christ if, if a movie like The Resurrection is done properly, you know, and stuff. So those are, those are some things that you can be praying about. And so what we're doing at the Preacher Research Center is just basically trying to defend the literal interpretation of Scripture, uh, <clears throat> you know, in a day when academia is not interested in doing it anymore because they've become enlightened uh, with allegorical interpretation and, uh, and, and help prophecy ministries, many of them who become too extreme in their speculation, you know, we hope that we are having an influence to help reel them in. And so that's why we have a broad attendance of many people <clears throat> from all kinds of backgrounds <clears throat> at our uh, conference and things, hoping to have an influence, you know, in those areas. And uh, so that's what I've been doing uh, full-time for almost 15 years. Two years ago, Dr. LaHaye thought it would be a good idea if I would go to Liberty University uh, and we would move the Preacher of Research Center there. He'd given a, 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 a quite a few million dollars, you know, to the university with Jerry Falwell, so it didn't take much persuasion uh, for them to be open to the idea. And uh, so I've been at Liberty University for two years now and continuing to be the director of the Preacher of Research Center, but also teaching at Liberty University. And Liberty now has 11,000 students. Uh, they're adding the, their engineering department this year. They will have all the academic disciplines. Uh, they have a law school. This will be it's in its third year now. It's fully accredited. And they're going to be starting a medical school next year. They'll be the only Christian university you know, in America to have evangelical Christian school to have a, a medical school. And uh, they have a seminary, and Randy Price is, is probably going to be moving to Liberty, and uh, Jerry Falwell wants him to head up a Hebrew studies department to specialize in, in, in Hebrew and Hebrew studies and all that kind of stuff at seminary level. And I'm supposed to go over with him to the seminary and, and work in that area as well doing a lot of stuff uh, on, on, like, the history of Israel, uh, modern Israel and uh, various things like that. But I've been teaching classes, like this semester I'm teaching a course on dispensationalism, the first time they've ever had one taught at Liberty, uh, even though they have been dispensational for many years. And I'm also teaching a, a class on Daniel and Revelation. And the next semester I'm supposed to teach a class on eschatology, and uh, a class on Israelology, and of course we'll be using Arnold Frichtenbaum's, you know, book on that. And so I'm hopeful that uh, we will continue to have an influence of influencing people, you know, on how to interpret the Bible literally, and uh, hopefully have an influence of uh, emphasizing the original languages and studies like that at, at Liberty Seminary which does not have a reputation in the past, you know, for that kind of stuff, but they're under the, um, since Ergen Kanner has been president of the seminary for about two years now, he's the, he is a converted Muslim as well. That You know, people call him the Muslim, but he's not a Muslim anymore. <laughs> he, he used to be. And he ha, he is upgrading the seminary and making it, you know, a lot more academically challenging in these areas. So, we're, hope, we're hoping now to have, have an influence at the educational level as well. And so that's kind of what I've been doing for a while, and every once in a while I talk on the phone to Robbie. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dr. Dean. Every once, every once in a while. Yeah, I know, because either, it's hard to get our schedules together. He always calls when I'm in class, and I don't answer the phone. Well, we Windows message at 3 in the morning. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> before I left on vacation, and we had the conference, we were studying in Hebrews chapter 7, 
with the episode of Melchizedek. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7 and just sort of anchor where we are there. Hebrews 7 is beginning a new section. The fourth section in the book of, Revel- book of Hebrews. Focusing on the uniqueness of Christ's priesthood based on the priesthood, the royal priesthood of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And, of course, there's only about two or three verses in Genesis chapter 14 that deal with Melchizedek, yet under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews is, is take, dealing with the episode in Genesis 18, connecting that to Psalm 110, and from that developing the implications and significance of that Melchizedekian priesthood in relationship to the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we come to verse 2 of chapter 7, we read that it was to Melchizedek also that Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated, that starts talking about the name of Melchizedek, being translated king of righteousness, that he was also the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. Then we have in verse 3 an explanation of his background. And as I've stated the last couple of lessons, without fa- the phrase without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, is not a reference to the fact that he didn't have a mama or daddy, that he, didn't ha- that he wasn't born, that he didn't have any... Uh, physical lineage or ancestors, it is talking about what is in the text of Scripture, that the text of Scripture doesn't tell us about his father and his mother and his lineage because that wasn't relevant to this kind of priesthood. The Melchizedekian priesthood was an appointed priesthood. It was a priesthood based upon... Uh, the individual's relationship to God. We don't know much more about that other than it was a royal, uh, a royal priesthood. And the emphasis is verse, actually verses, um, from about the 2b being where we start reading being translated king of righteousness down through the end of three is sort of a parenthesis as a reminder of who Melchizedek is. But it seems like the driving point of this paragraph from verse 1 down to verse 10 centers around the, uh, the event of the fact that Abraham paid these tithes to Melchizedek. And the point of all this is to show the superiority then of Melchizedek, that because Abraham paid tithes, basically he gave a tribute payment to Melchizedek, and that indicates, because this was the custom in the ancient world, that the one to whom you gave a tribute payment, that you paid a tithe, that was usually a 10% uh, figure, and that's what tithe means is 10%, that that indicated that you were honoring someone who was in authority over you. And the writer of Hebrews is going to draw some uh, implications from that. But as we got into this whole issue of the paying of tithes, where we find in verse 4 we read, Now consider how great this man was, that is Melchizedek, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Now, that's important to understand. So we had to stop and talk about this whole doctrine of tithing. It's very interesting. There was a um, a young person, pastor here during the week that uh, I won't mention anything about him because you'd instantly know who he was, but he comes from up in Ohio, and it's not John sitting back there on the back row. Some, some, this was another, uh, he would have been associate pastor in a, a Baptist church up in Ohio, and he finally left over this tithing issue because of the way they pressed it and pressed it, and he continued to go into the pastor and he continued to explain what the, what the scriptures taught, but they were afraid that if they just relaxed and 
relied upon God the Holy Spirit to move people to give on a, the basis of gratitude for what they were learning, that, that all the funding would dry up. So there was this, within the church machine, which is too often what we have today in religious activity, there's this constant uh, reminder to people. I've been in churches and places where, in the course of a church service, you might have as many as three different offerings. Now, sometimes those can, it can be valid if you're taking up offerings for different things. But if you're you're really driving and manipulating and making people feel guilty about what they're what they're giving, then you're out of line. That is creates a false motivation. Forgiving, but so much of what you have in many churches is tithing, 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 and you hear that phraseology over and over again. And what I started to show the last time was that the concept of tithing is an Old Testament concept related to the Mosaic Law primarily. But there are two examples prior to the Mosaic Law. Two examples, one in the case of Abraham, one in the case of of Jacob as he's at Bethel on his way out of the land where you have the mention of a of a tithe, the giving of 10%. And as I talked about last time, this was customary in the culture. We have examples from other uh, cultures in the ancient world, from Hammurabi and Babylon and from some other examples, where this tribute to someone in authority in, in gratitude for what they have done was... Uh, 10%. We looked at the Mosaic Law, and we saw that in the Mosaic Law there were actually three tithes. Nobody ever talks about that, although I am aware that there was a pastor of a rather large church here in Houston that back in the uh, seven, early 70s, I think, when they were the, building their large building uh, down here, they were encouraging people to triple tithe and take out a second mortgage. In order to meet their, in order to meet their payment. So, but you very rarely have people under talk about it in those terms. There were three ties, as I pointed out. One's in Leviticus 27:30, or rather, Leviticus 27:30 gives the principle of giving the tithe of the land, which was everything. You had the first tithe, which dealt with supporting the bureaucracy, the theocracy, the priesthood. In Numbers 18:21 to 23, then the second tithe provided for a national celebration of the grace and provision of God. And that's explained in Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 24. And those were annual tithes. And then there was a third tithe that was taken up every third year to support the Levite, the alien, the orphan, and the widow. And, and that's explained in Deuteronomy chapter 14, 28 to 29. And the tithes were taken up. And in the land, that money was kept in the storehouse, the treasury of the, of the temple. These were mandatory gifts. It's legislation for the support of the uh, theocracy, as it were, of the priests and the Levites, and also to take care of the widows, the orphans, and those who, for one reason or another, had lost what they have and, could not ha- had, and did not have the general means of daily sustenance. But... There were also free will offerings, as I pointed out last time in the Old Testament, and these are referenced in Proverbs 3, 9 through 10, uh, Exodus 25, 1 and 2, where Moses raised money through a free will offering to build the uh, tabernacle, and then there are various other passages that were given in, um, in, the, in the law, in Leviticus 22, 28 to 23. Other passages mention the tithing, but it's all related to this concept of paying the tax to support the nation and the bureaucracy which was the what which was the priesthood. Now I pointed out last time that this is the background for understanding what happens in Malachi, one of the favorite passages that uh, people go to that you will hear and I've heard them in so many different congregations and churches is based on Malachi chapter 3 verses 8 through 10. And the principle here is that this passage in Malachi 3, 8 through 10 recognizes that the storehouse, the national bank for the tithe, was the temple. Malachi 3, 8, God is challenging them. Remember, this was a generation that had returned from the captivity. 
and they were back in the land, and by this time, it's about, they've been back in the land about a hundred years, maybe about 90 years, and back in the land, they'd rebuilt the temple, but everything was really falling apart. The, the, the structures that had been established were not being taken care of properly. And part of it was because the entire tax system that God had established had broken down. And because the tax system had broken down, the temple was in disrepair and this dishonored God. And so God is confronting and challenging the people for their disobedience to the law. Now, the law, remember, is given in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and it's restated in Deuteronomy. And so the law becomes the basis for the prophetic challenges. The best way to understand the role of a prophet in the Old Testament isn't someone who told the future. That's not what the prophet did. That was secondary. It's ancillary. It was, it was what went along with what he said, but that wasn't his purpose. His purpose wasn't just to be a preacher. His purpose was to serve as sort of a prosecuting attorney for the Supreme Court of Heaven to the nation of Israel, saying this is what the contract says, boom, 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 boom. This is what you're accountable for. You're not doing it. And so Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 says that God's going to do this to you in terms of divine discipline. If you don't change, shuv, which is uh, the Hebrew word for turn or sometimes translated repent. Tommy was saying last night that in Israel, that's what uh, uh, the Jews will use, still use that phrase today to do the, what, what's the term? Shuvah. To the Shuvah. Do the Shuvah, and that is to Shuvah, to change, to turn, that if you're repenting or you've been in a life of, of sin, now you're going to become religious, they do the Shuvah. So you have... That, that turn. That's what God, that's what the prophet did. He challenged them. And often the reason you bring in the futuristic element is because as God was through the prophet itemizing the lawsuit against them, he would say, as a result of your failure, I'm going to judge you, but yet these things will happen in the future. And the, the, all of the future predictive elements were designed to encourage the Jews with the fact that God wasn't disciplining them or taking them out of the land permanently, but yet he did still have a future for them and he would not forsake them on a permanent basis. So the challenge in Malachi 3, 8 through 10, coming from God, is, quote, will a man rob God? If you don't give your tithe to the nation Israel, your tax, you're robbing God. You have robbed me, God says, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? See, they're so innocent. They're just, they, they can't understand. We, we haven't robbed you. And God says, in tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me. That takes you right back to Deuteronomy. The judgments of, of Deuteronomy, even the whole nation is going to come under divine discipline. And then God commands them, in verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Now, that's the phrase you often hear people, uh, pastors go to. Bring the tithes into the storehouse. In other words, give your money to the church. But that's not what it's saying. The bring is the hifil imperative, second person plural. It's addressed to the nation. To bring, and the hifil is causative. It means cause to bring. The imperative is a mandate to bring all the tithes. That means the the 10% for the priests and the Levites, the 10% for the annual celebration, and the every third year tithe to support the uh, widows and orphans. So it says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. And the word for storehouse is the Hebrew word otzer, which is one of nine different words used for treasure. But this word is used of either the treasure in the king's house, it's used of the treasure in the temple, or it's also used of the, the material possessions and treasure that an individual would bring together. There are nine references in the Old Testament where this word uh, describes the temple treasury. And a couple of these, I thought I'd put these in here. I guess I, I did not. A couple of these are Joshua 6.19. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury, that's Otzer, the treasury of the Lord. In 1 Kings 7.51, when Solomon has built the temple. We read, so all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. 
And Solomon brought into things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So there was a temple treasury in the house of the Lord. 1 Kings 14.26 And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. This refers to the plundering of the temple treasury. So this term is a term that refers to uh, the temple treasure. So Malachi 3.10 is a challenge to people to pay their tithes under the Mosaic law to put them in the storehouse. And God says that do this so there will be food in my house. And he says, try me now this. Go ahead and test me. If you don't do it, you're really going to get disciplined. That's what he's saying, says the Lord of hosts. And if I will not open for you the windows of heaven. In other words, if you do this, I will bless the nation. I will prosper the nation. That's exactly what he had promised back in the Mosaic Law, that if you obey the law, I will pour out blessing upon the nation. If you're disobedient to the Mosaic Law, I'm going to discipline you. So we had several summary key principles. First of all, Giving, even under the Mosaic Law, wasn't a system of spiritual growth. It was a means of taxation. It's based on grace orientation, gratitude uh, for the work that God has provided when it deals with the free will offering. Second, we saw that grace doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation to give. A lot of people think that, especially you'll see people who come out of a heavy legalistic background where they're taught to tithe today and it's pounded into them. The pastor's always talking about uh, giving, giving, and every, every other message is a m- message related to giving. And all of a sudden they come to a grace-oriented church and they think, Phew, I don't have to give anymore. And they may go through a reaction for a while, but no, that's not, grace doesn't mean that you don't have responsibilities. Grace doesn't mean that there's no giving. Grace means that there is an obligation to give, but it's between you and the Lord, and it's based upon your inner motivation and your gratitude, and there's no set percentage. It's as God has prospered you. Trust me, as God has prospered us is a heck of a lot more convicting and more challenging than 10%. Third, we understand that grace doesn't mean it's free. There is a cost, but just as in salvation, which is free, the cost is paid by someone else. And that is that we have fabulous things that happen here, as I talked about, with the conference and the ministry. And there were a number of people who gave generously and sacrificially and gave in abundance in order to meet the financial needs of that conference. And so many people uh, came, and they didn't have to pay for a room at the hotel. They didn't have to pay for meals. Uh, For them, it was free, but somebody was generous and took care of that, and they were able to be graced out in that situation. Now, grace is the principle that continues into the church. So you have grace in the Old Testament, and you have grace in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, the word tithing is mentioned in the Gospels only in reference to the legalistic practice of the Pharisees. And uh, there are those verses. I know I put them in somewhere. See, it's been a long day, and I'm God can got things out of order. Let's go to Luke 11. I probably distracted. You probably did. He kept talking to me while I was trying to put my PowerPoint together. But I'm not going to blame him. I should have kicked him out of the room. (laughs) Luke 11. Turn your Bibles to Luke 11. Let's look at the context. Luke 11.42. The reason I make this point here is because a lot of people think that tithing is legalistic. Tithing isn't legalistic. There's no such thing as legalistic... uh, Blessing in the Old Testament. When the Jews functioned under the law, that wasn't legalism. That was still grace. Grace doesn't mean there's no responsibility and obligation. Grace means it's oriented to God's uh, undeserved, unmerited favor. So the point that I'm making is that what the Pharisees did 
was instead of recognizing the tithe in its biblical context, they start making it the basis for gaining God's approbation, his approval. You see, that's the difference. So you can do the same thing. This person over here does it, and it's legalism. This person over here does it, and it's grace. Because it's grounded in the motivation, the gratitude that's in the individual soul of that believer. This person over here puts $500 in the collection plate and they think that this is their tithe, their 10% contribution. God is going to bless them because aren't they great? They're giving 10%. They're fulfilling their obligation to tithe. That's legalism. This person over here puts the same 10% in the same amount, and they're just saying, what a great thing God has done for me. I want to share the what he has given me with others so that they're able to hear the word of God and they're able to respond to it. See, the difference is in motivation. And what the Pharisees did was they took the law, and Paul said the law was unholy, unrighteous, and bad, Right? No, he said the law was holy and righteous and good. The law included tithing. Therefore, tithing cannot be in the Old Testament, in the right context, cannot be legalistic. It was good. It was holy and it was righteous. But it was done in cons- consistent with grace orientation. But what the Pharisees did was they came in and they made this ritualistic ob- observance of the law the basis for gaining God's approval and God's blessing. So we come to Luke 11, uh, 42. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs indicating that they they get it down to the most minutia, and they pass by justice and the love of God. See, they're applying the tithe down to the most minute thing. They're going to make sure that they're cutting that 10% down to every every minor uh, possession that they have. But in the process, they are ignoring the justice of God, which here is the word chrysis, which is his judgment, the operation of his judgment. It's not dikaios, righteousness. It's the operation of it in terms of justice and the application of God's character. They they ignore that and the love of God. So it's all about just doing the right thing without having the right relationship to God. And he says, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Well, let's look at the context. Look at the context. As you go on to read it, in verse 43, he pronounces another woe on the Pharisees. He says, For woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. They're all about approbation. They want everybody to recognize them as having arrived spiritually. So they're going to sit up front. They're going to be in the places where, in the marketplace where they are seen and observed. And then in verse 44, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. And so his emphasis here is on their legalism, that it's all about the external and not about the internal attitude of the soul and its orientation to the grace of God. Another verse in Luke, the second use of, of tithing in, uh, in the Gospels is in chapter 18, verse 12. And this use comes out of the mouth of a Pharisee. This is the episode of the parable that Jesus tells. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So he's going to use a Pharisee on the one hand and a tax collector on the other. Not a, it's not a historical incident. They're unnamed. It's a parable. And so he takes the Pharisee and he's going to juxtapose these two to bring out the difference, the core difference between legalism and grace. Legalism isn't saying thou shalt not. Legalism is saying that observing the thou shalt not is what gets you approval with God. 
That's how you get saved. That's how you get blessed by God. It's a rejection of the whole doctrine of imputation of Christ's righteousness as the basis for God's, for God's blessing. So Jesus tells the parable. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. Uh, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, they're unjust, adulterers, and look like this tax collector here. So I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. See, earlier in, in Matthew, Jesus says, you know, if you give, give in such a way that your left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. The giving is a matter of privacy. It's not done before men. It is to be done in privacy. It's be unobserved, not announced. It doesn't matter what other people see. If you think your reward comes from what other people see because they recognize what a great giver you are and how generous you are, then that is your reward. No reward later on at the judgment seat of Christ because you put your hope in the flesh and in men. Cursed is the man who trusts in men. So that's what the Pharisee, that's what makes it legalistic, is he is putting the emphasis on what he does. And the tax collector, in contrast, verse 13, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes. This He is so aware that he has no business being in the presence of God. He has true, genuine humility, recognizing that as a sinner, we don't bring anything at all to the table God does everything. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the path to uh, preeminence is humility and recognizing that authority orientation. Now, the Lord also taught, as our second point, the Lord taught that giving was to be a private matter between the believer and God. There we go. Now I'm back on track here. A private matter between the believer and God. Nobody else's business. Matthew 6, 2, Jesus said, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed... Don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what the right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Giving should be done in such a way that people can preserve their privacy. If some people, sometimes people say, well, you know, I can't really preserve my privacy when, when we pass a plate in church. And I've been in churches that, that take up a collection by passing a plate and others that put a box in the back. Uh, sometimes it just, we all forget. We, and I think that passing a plate is a good reminder. We all forget. A lot of times people just put a, put something out in the hallway. And people do forget, so I don't have a problem with passing a plate. Some people get concerned about privacy. Somebody may, I've heard people say this, well, somebody down the row may, my check may pop open and somebody may see what I gave. Okay, great, put it in the mail. Don't get wrapped around the axle. Everybody wants to overthink stuff. Uh, the, the issue is about it's between you and the Lord and not letting it be known to other people. And then third point, the New Testament clearly recognizes free will giving that is based on gratitude in soul and not on the basis of a prescribed percentage. And in Luke 21, 2 through 4, 2 through 4 we have the story of the widow who puts the two mites into the, into the collection. Jesus saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Truly, I say to you, he said that this poor widow has put in more than all. For these others put in from their abundance. That is, they look at how much is, is left at the end of the month in their checkbook, and then they decide how much they're going to give based on what's left over. Kind of like what, uh, what uh, Dr. Kate said the other night happens in, in, in 
uh, Islam is that they they are supposed to give what was it three and three point two percent or three and a half percent or something like that, and they wait to the end of the year. It's not based on how much they made, not based on their gross. And I always see if Christians come, well, should I give? You know, I want to give ten percent. Is that ten percent net? Ten percent of gross? It's ten percent of grace. Okay, just don't worry about the numbers. Worry about the grace, and that's it. But but what the what the Muslims will do is say, well, it's three and a half percent of what's in the checkbook at the end of the year after everything is paid for, which becomes very negligible. So here what Jesus is saying is that it is a decision that is made up front in the budgeting process that you're going to decide that I'm going to give this amount of money and support local church and missions, and I know that God is going to bless and honor whatever it is I give. He's going to take care of me, and I'm going to trust him to take care of me. It's not done irrationally or irresponsibly, but it's done in light of, of a thought-out procedure, according to 1 Corinthians, based on uh, how God has prospered you. So Jesus says in verse 4, For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. See, later on we're going to see how the Macedonians were praised by, the, by Paul because they gave out of their poverty to help support the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who were going through a time of famine. They didn't look around and say, well, you know, the Lord really hasn't given us much. They said, well, the Lord hadn't given us much, but, but I still have a responsibility to help others. And so they were, uh, the Macedonians have the same, demonstrate the same principle of giving out of their lack, not out of their abundance. Well, next time we'll come back, we'll get, come into point four, dealing with what's going on with Abraham's tithe, and then we'll wrap up with the other principles and two other key passages in the New Testament for giving, 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's going to be important. We need to ask the question, is there a reason, is there a legitimacy for churches, for pastors, for seminaries to let people know what their needs are. You know, there's some ministry that say, hmm, you know, you let people know what your needs are. You're just asking for money. Is there a basis for that biblically? And we'll look at that when we come back uh, next Thursday night. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you again so much for this last week, for everyone who participated for each one's generosity, their giving of their time and their energy to bring off this conference. We're just so grateful for the way you've worked in each one's lives. Thank you for Dr. Ice, for Dr. LaHaye, for the pre-trib rapture study group, the impact that that is having, and the tremendous ministry that has come out of these pre-trib study group meetings over the last 15 years. Now, Father, we pray that you would take the things that we've studied, that we may ponder them in our souls, and that God the Holy Spirit would strengthen us in our application. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.